Welcome to the Get Your Donut Podcast. We're here to exchange our consumeristic Christianity for a life fully surrendered to Christ, and to never let our faith be as simple as grabbing coffee and a donut in the lobby. Let's do this. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of the Get Your Donut Podcast. I'm Noah Reed, your host, and excited to jump into a conversation today uh, as we continue uh, this three-part series that we're doing on what it looks like to find a church to find a healthy church, whether that be uh, a very large church like we're going to talk about today or a small church like we'll talk about next week. We want to take a moment and look at what it looks like to find and become uh, a part of a healthy and biblical church. Before we do that, uh, let me just remind you that if you do not do so already, we'd love for you to follow us on Instagram at What's Up Reads or subscribe to our email newsletter using the link below in the description. Those are two of the best ways to stay in touch with everything that we have going on. I'm excited uh, today to have Derek back on the show. Uh, Derek joined us uh, previously for a conversation on worship, and it was many of our listeners' favorite episodes. So Derek, we are just excited to have you back on the show. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. No, I'm excited to be back. Oh, yeah. Derek, would you mind uh, just giving us a a kind of a reminder intro uh, to who you are and what you do? Uh, Again, briefly, just give us a a preview snippet into your life, if you will. Yeah, my name is Derek Brandt, and I am the brother-in-law to Noah Reed, which is the way I introduce myself to most people. Um, And then my (laughs) wife, Sarah, and I have been married for about 12 years (laughs) We have four wonderful kiddos, and I am currently serving as the worship and creative arts pastor at Scottsdale Bible Church uh, inside Phoenix, Arizona. Fantastic. Uh, Derek, our conversation today, uh, we're going to be giving a defense of megachurches, and so I'm excited uh, to get into that. But before we do, I thought just in the beginning... Uh, if there's any books or resources that you might recommend to listeners about the church, about developing ecclesiology or choosing a church or anything that kind of falls into that realm, uh, what would you recommend? Yeah, there, there's two resources I'd recommend, but I, I'm I'm a, a little bit I'm a little bit dodging the question just because these are two resources that I just think are great for Christians to read and then watch slash listen to. And they challenged a lot of my assumptions about what church is okay. and really helped me develop some of the concepts, or I, I should say better, understand some of the concepts that we're going to discuss today. And so they're not, like, ostensibly, they're not about uh, ecclesiology or anything, but they, they're they very formational to me. And so one of them is uh, Eugene Peterson's memoir, uh, The Pastor, uh, and it's just a phenomenal book in which he kind of outlines his uh, failures and the Spirit's successes throughout his ministry career. He speaks about his history in counseling, in biblical linguistics, uh, but he talks a lot about kind of how he slowly, over many decades, formulated his own ecclesiology, obviously based on the Scripture, but proved out in his experience and by the leading of the Holy Spirit. And then the other one is actually a free movie that's available online called Godspeed, and... Oh no, I can't remember the the pastor's name. It's pastor's brother. McCandless is their last name, and it's this thirty minute documentary about uh, this gentleman who goes to seminary, and he's actually discipled, mentored by Eugene Peterson, and he goes and he is 
he starts his career at an incredibly remote parish uh, on the backside of beyond, is what they call it, in rural Scotland. And he just talks about the idea of parish, the idea of church, what it is to be a pastor, what it is to be a Christian, and his explanation and understanding of the church is pretty incredible. I'm I, I'm fairly certain he's a pastor now up in Seattle, Washington, okay. and is at a great church up there. I've I've tuned into a few of their services just because we live in a technological age where that's possible, <laughs> and I, I I love I love getting to do that a little bit here and there. Oh, that's awesome. I'll be sure to to link those two uh, resources in the description. I'm actually reading um, the Contemplative Pastor by Eugene Peterson yeah. right now, yeah. Uh, and his memoir, the the Pastor, is next on my list. But that one has uh, been challenging me all over the place already. I've uh, been reading it through with one of the elders at our church, and it feels like every chapter I finish uh, after I reread some of his writing because it takes me a couple times to take it in. I just walk away feeling like, oh, that like really just challenges the way I kind of always thought about either my role or like the church that I'm involved in. So I don't know. I've enjoyed reading it, yeah. and I'm sure that I would love the the pastor as well. Uh, it's interesting though. I mean, you've mentioned this before, Eugene Peterson, and it sounds like uh, the movie too that that you are recommending uh, dealt mostly with like small smaller churches uh, and like even just parish style uh, ministry or small church ministry um, and for them to be so formational uh, for you working at a large church. I'm curious like if there's been like what that looked like for you because you've talked about reading him and agreeing with everything he says, but in a large church context and maybe I'm jumping ahead, but what have you found that's very fair. I, I think, and this is probably going to get at the heart of most of what we'll discuss today, but one of the things that frustrates me in my brother in Christ, Eugene Peterson, is I generally agree with all of his conclusions about church, about ecclesiology, certainly about pastoral vocational ministry, all of those things, and then he tends to take an extra step, which I think a lot of people agree with, so I, I have room here to be wrong, but he takes an extra step to say, therefore a church must look this way, it must be no more than this size, you know, and he had some, throughout his life, he was very outspoken about his feelings on that, and I, I believe that Pastor Peterson felt a conviction of the Holy Spirit that he himself should pastor a church that looked a little bit more like that, hmm. and and I believe he discipled and mentored, and either th through his personal life or through his writings, countless pastors around the country and around the world who would tend to agree with him, who would tend to share that conviction. Um, but a lot, I think, of what we're going to be talking about today is this idea of what is the church, yeah. and how does the word mega relate to that? How does the word small relate to that. So he, uh, those are both great because they challenged me to think about the way that I view church in general, and right. I, don't, I don't think either one of those particular works, maybe a couple times in pastor, but neither one of those works makes any kind of conclusion about big church, small church, uh, sure. wrong, right, Sure. S simply that that's kind of the, the way that those ministries play themselves out, and it's a great, it's a great viewpoint into two men who love their their flock yeah. really, really, really well. Okay. Yeah. No, and, th and that's a good point to make too, is even in our conversation, 
uh, you know, we, we are going to be careful to, you know, make sure that we're not saying that all mega churches are, you know, necessarily better than all smaller churches or vice versa. When I talk with Dave about small churches, why we're not saying that, you know, all small churches must be better than, than big churches. Rather, we are talking about, and this is what we're going to get into our, our first kind of question here, what the church looks like and how that might play itself out in, you know, a mega church setting or a small church setting and what we can kind of be looking for as far as um, what a healthy and biblical uh, church looks like that we might, that we might be a part of. And so uh, some background uh, for you, for you guys as listeners, actually, Derek came to me with this idea for the episode, uh, which I was excited uh, to do, because if you would have met me gosh, I don't know, several years ago and for most of my life before that, I would have never thought that I would be giving a defense of megachurches. Uh, well, I would have never thought I would have had a podcast, first of all, but then I especially would have never thought I'd be uh, doing a whole episode on defending megachurches. Um, but Derek, through a lot of like conversations with you and watching you, uh, you know, pastor at a wonderful church has really caused me to be more thoughtful uh, in my approach to my understanding of the church and ministry and pastoral vocation uh, as well. And so I don't know, I'm excited to get into the conversation mostly because uh, this is a conversation that I thought I'd never have and I'm excited to have it. And I hope that, uh, you know, you guys who are listening uh, benefit from it as well. I think sometimes we we have, at least I do, like a stigma wrapped up around something and I project it onto the rest of, you know, everything in that category. And so if I have one bad megachurch experience, I project that onto, you know, either all megachurches or just the idea of large church and whatnot. Uh, and anyways, we want to talk about uh, why that, that isn't helpful and, and what an actual uh, concept for a healthy church or biblical church looks like and, and how that plays itself out. So, Derek, why don't you start us off and, and help us first understand uh, what the church is, where you're, uh, where you're coming from, Derek, when you talk about the church, uh, maybe some of like the defining factors for you that qualify a body of Christ as a church. The, the biggest realization I came to a few years ago that, that kind of put this on my mind and on my heart to begin with, and, and not, I know we're sort of tongue-in-cheek titling this episode in defense of the megachurch, and I happen to be a pastor at a megachurch right now, but this is really just distinguishing the church for me. And sure. th there's a difference. I think one of the one of the worst things that we did in the history of the church, and this is not like pretentious music pastor wants to call everything exactly what it should be. Like I, these are terms that I accept and use in my day to day ministry, but when we're talking about it philosophically, theologically, ecclesiologically. Here's, here's my statement now. I would say one of the biggest mistakes we've made throughout the history of the Church, um, the, the Holy Universal Apostolic Church, uh, the Church uh, Global, is we conflated that term Church, Ecclesia, with the building and the local congregation that we gather in. And there, there's some really good, natural, normal reasons that that evolution occurred throughout kind of our rural history as humanity, but as we've urbanized over the last few hundred years and as city centers have grown and multiple churches are now springing up across multiple communities, what you have is a conflation of the term local congregation, local gathering, you know, parish, however you want to define it, and what the church as the body of Christ is, what the church is unified in Christ across the globe is. And so 
I define it as um, the universal body of believers spread across the globe and united in their faith in Christ. And that's a remarkably simple definition, but I think it will greatly inform some of our discussions about size and how local congregations play themselves out in that way. And so if you were to meet me at my job and have a conversation with me on a normal day, I'm, I'm not going to try to agree on all these terms for the sake of having a regular conversation with anybody. I use the term church to describe the local congregation, to describe the building, the meeting place, the gathering, and all of those things. But when we're talking about when we're talking about it in this context, I think that distinction is incredibly important. And so in an ideal world, I think when we talk about the kingdom of God, which is presently coming, that's how we define the church, the body of Christ spread across the globe, united in faith in Christ. Yeah, I think that's super helpful. Um, in fact, could you just say that one more time for me? Because I'm trying to get the words like all fresh in my mind. Yeah, I, I mean, the body of Christ... Uh, united globally in faith in Christ. Now, there's there's outplay of the Holy Spirit in that. Sure. There, there's there's all kinds of deeper things that we could talk about. So, please don't ding me for having uh, an incomplete definition, dear listeners. Sure. That that is just what we're talking about here in the context of this episode. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the questions that I want to ask uh, you is in in that definition. Um, one of the first places that my mind like races towards and maybe listeners as well. Maybe not. Maybe it's just me. But when I hear the word church, often I associate that with the Sunday morning gathering. Uh, and so when I hear that definition, one of the questions that comes to my mind is how can I like what in what ways should I be thinking about the difference between a Sunday morning gathering and like the church throughout the week? Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think there's a lot of downsides to that. And again, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't want to just keep sounding like I'm correcting. Those are the same terms I use. I promise that's the last time I'll say that. <laughs> but like, I, I don't want it to sound like, oh, every time Noah says anything about the church, Derek corrects him. And it's like, no, like, that's how I talk about it as well. But when, when we define things that way, when we define church as the Sunday morning gathering, or at least when we use that term colloquially in that way, um, we make some suppositions that impact the way that we live out our faith, and so I'll just give some examples, and this is true of all sizes of church. But let's say I think to myself, the church is the place where the people of God gather together. Okay, well, if that's true, I might have a tendency to say, when people come over to my house and things take a spiritual turn, uh, and we start talking about the present work of the Holy Spirit, what he's doing through his word, what he's doing through the body of Christ, all of the sudden, and, and this, when I play it out this way, it may sound ridiculous, but I think it happens practically more often than we acknowledge. When that happens, and we realize, oh shoot, there's no pastor in the room. We might be inclined to shy away from those conversations, to think, I don't know answers, therefore I shouldn't engage in discussions, and we forget that in that moment we remain steadfastly the Church, filled with exactly the same Holy Spirit that we are when we gather together on Sunday mornings. Hmm. So that's that's one like downside of, of simply or merely viewing the Church that way. You know, another issue with that is that the, the function of the Church is the ministry of all believers, and so when we read in all the epistles, when we read about you know, the Acts of the Apostles about what the Church was up to, 
yes, there is leadership presiding over the Church, and yes, there are people reporting on those things, but when we read about what is actually happening, it's happening among the believers. And so we somehow disconnect ourselves from the Church six and a half days a week if we only call it, or if we often call it, this gathering that occurs on Sunday. Now, I'm a worship and creative arts pastor. I take <laughs> what the Church does when it gathers very seriously. I take liturgy very seriously. I take the gathering place extremely seriously, and I think those are important pieces of spiritual formation in a believer's life. Christian community gathered together week in and week out um, is so crucial. I just think that when we reduce Church to that, we unwittingly train ourselves to weaken the exercise of our faith in our day-to-day ministry as believers. I may be a vocational pastor, the people of my church, the people of my parish, the people of my local congregation may affirm me as pastor. I may have some sort of calling into that ministry. The government certainly sees me as a pastor, but at the end of the day, I am equal as a minister of the gospel to all of my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I am called, just like them, to be subject to one another. And so, yeah, we can talk a little bit maybe about church governance and all those kinds of things, but those are the things that we lose when we reduce church to Sunday morning. Yeah, no, I think I think that's super helpful, and one of the things that comes to my mind as you're talking about that is the importance of like remembering, it's, it's almost like an identity thing, once we're in Christ being a part of the church, and... Uh, I use that word identity because that's not something that you like take on on Sunday and then you take on a different identity the other six days unless you're either like a superhero or you have mental problems. Uh, You have an identity and that's generally the same kind of every day. And if we view our identity as, uh, you know, once we're in Christ, we're a part of, you know, this body that's that's global that has ramifications for every day uh, that we live. And I think just viewing ourselves like every day as we wake up as the church um, is really helpful in in recognizing that we all have a call to, uh, you know, share the gospel with those around us, to help care for, uh, you know, the the poor and the, and the weak around us and those sorts of things. And those things, I think, make a lot more sense when we wake up on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and are able to, uh, to view ourselves more and more as the church throughout the week, as opposed to just Sunday. Um, but a, fo- a follow-up question that I had for you on that was, it sounds a little bit like um, you're saying that one of the main reasons that we gather on a Sunday morning is for the purpose of formation together. Would you be able to speak a little bit more to that? I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, I, I think that's fair. I think um, sort of the the stewardship, the word that I really like is curation. The curation of a time in the history of the church has seemed pretty important, and again, that's true for all-size churches at your church, at any church, uh, at the church of almost any listener. You're going to gather together, you're going to probably sing some songs, you're going to spend time in God's Word, you're going to hear a message or a homily or what have you, Um, and then hopefully absolutely core to all of that, and, and you know, I said I was going to add some things to my definition. If you wanted to deepen my definition, I would add primarily, uh, initially, fellowship, right? We're going to be together with other believers, and I think I referenced this in my last uh, conversation with you here, but, um, you know, in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, it, it seems to me that there's a unique filling of the Holy Spirit that occurs when those things happen, and so it's not—I I think that's more of a surrender thing, 
when I read that and, and when I'm looking at Paul's views there, but it's not as though we get together on Sunday and all of the sudden God goes, all right, well, you're here, so I might as well fill up your tank. I think it's more of us opening ourselves up to being filled in worship and in His Word and in fellowship, and that is a unique thing that occurs when we're together, when we're gathered as the Church, which again happens on Sunday morning in a curated, stewarded time. I think that same kind of thing can happen in a small group gathering in your home when we're gathered as the Church. It just it looks a little bit different in function. But yes, that, that time is meant for formation. It's meant to turn to God's Word, to worship Him, to pray, uh, and to have time together in fellowship. Yeah, fantastic. I, I think I agree uh, with everything uh, that you said as well. And it's just a helpful kind of perspective to have too. Um, with with all of that in mind, because that, that kind of answers a lot of the questions, kind of gives us a foundation, I guess, for the rest of the conversation. So where do you think a mega church falls in with these things? And again, like we want to caution and say, uh, you know, we're defending mega churches, but it's not because we think everybody should be at a mega church. It's because right. uh, we want to offer the idea that a mega church might do some of these things really, really well. Uh, and there might be potential weaknesses in a mega church as well. Uh, but we want to first just talk about what are some of the strengths of a mega church model when it comes to, to fulfilling what we've just talked about? Where, where might we find this, like a mega church to be the right place for us to plug in? What would be the strengths there? Yeah, and this takes me back to the last time we, we talked here. Also, you, you know, you you offered up a definition, or excuse me, a, a a way that we might combat consumerism in the church in your initial episode, and I'm I'm I really liked it, and that is critical thinking. And I think that what we need to be doing is thinking critically about you know whether it's life stage, whether it's geographic location, whether it's calling to a particular community, whatever that looks like. I would agree with you that, I, again, I said this earlier, but I happened to work at a megachurch. At one time, I worked at a church of about 120 on a two-person staff. Uh, I was the worship pastor. I was also the finance guy. I was the group's <laughs> pastor, and I was the youth pastor. And so I have a lot of love for churches that have smaller congregations. Many of my friends, some of my mentors, uh, work or attend smaller churches. Um, and so today, what I'd love to talk about it is more this idea that why I don't hate megachurches on spec. I'd love to I'd love to freely discuss weaknesses that I've observed and that I myself have experienced and even some that I perpetuated in, sure. in megachurches. And then I'd love to talk a little bit about some of my really positive experiences with with smaller churches and how that looks and, and maybe get into some of the challenges uh, that I've experienced there as well. But I would I would firmly agree with you. I'm not in any way trying to convince anyone or everyone that they should attend a megachurch. Sure. If anything, what I'm trying to do is draw us back to that unity in Christ, because one thing that's become so unique, I think especially in the West in the last couple hundred years, is we've sort of taken on this banner of church competition, Yeah. and we say, my church, whether it's the big church down the street or the small church down the street, is somehow better or a truer church because we do these things. <laughs> and I wonder how effective, how, how explosive the gospel would become in our communities if we stopped fighting with each other and started fighting Satan again. Yeah. Uh, and so th that's, that's a little bit what I want to approach. And yeah, so let's do it. When it, comes, when it comes specifically to megachurches, you know, the thing that I've experienced there is 
we view it very much as a vast resource center. Often I look at megachurches in the same way that for a long time we might have looked at denominations. Hmm. Historically speaking, denominations filled a need in geographic disbursement, and so that's maybe a difference, but what it was was it was groups of people getting together, and whether it was calendaring messages or putting hymnals together or sending people resources, whatever it was, it was saying, okay, we have the time, we have the the resources, the finances, we have some of the expertise here to sort of put together um, this sort of spirit-led Christian think tank to resource and love and care for and provide respite and resources to churches and church leadership. And megachurches, historically, are, are kind of just a, a, a gathering place of those resources. And so where a smaller church might have a teaching pastor who's also handling congregational care, who's also handling small groups, and then an associate pastor who's covering, you know, finance and some congregational care. Um, a, a megachurch might have someone who can more proactively engage uh, the unbelieving community around your church, and then they might have someone that can engage, you know, specifically the youth and their families surrounding your church, and then you have someone that can wrap their arms around not just the kids, but also the family, the parents of those kids at that church, and then you can have someone who can really specialize on what does it look like to minister to women, what does it look like to minister to men, what does it look like for us to focus on outreach or on worship? And I'm not in any way saying that because those resources, let's say vocationally, are available to a bigger church, that that church is somehow better or offering more than a smaller church, because again, I was at a church where most of the roles that I just described were handled by volunteers. It's just, it's a difference in in how much time and energy they're able to put into them. And so as a result of those resources being available, as a result of those people having the time carved out to do those things, I have found in my experience that um, the growth of that community, which, by the way, growth, in my opinion, should always be a byproduct of church health, not a byproduct of how attractive we are. And so if that church is healthy and if those resources are available, you know, barring falls, barring the awful things that we'll talk about here in a few minutes, growth tends to beget growth, and that's how a medium-sized, a, a, a becoming larger-sized church becomes a megachurch, oftentimes, in my opinion. Now going to acknowledge some of the pitfalls, and to maybe speak against them a little bit, I think the assumption, you know, that supposition that a lot of people make is, well, megachurches are personality-driven, and they're all about the lead guy who's up on that stage. You know, we might, we might uh, think about false apostles or super apostles or whatever, as, as, as Paul would call them in, in, in Corinth, and like they're toting a false gospel or a prosperity gospel, and for that reason, people are flocking to this church and then being condemned to an eternity in hell because they've been fleeced over. And let me just say that, yes, on some level, you know, exaggeration notwithstanding, there is some truth to that throughout history. But I would also say all of those same abuses are true throughout the history of smaller churches. There, there's, there's spiritual abuse all throughout our history. Uh, it's just a little bit more on the front pages these days. And so 
for every megachurch that's struggling under the moral failure of its leader or under the dictatorial authority of a leader, uh, I will gladly show you 10 that are thriving on, you know, absolute devotion to affinity for the Word of God, affinity for the fellowship of believers, and affinity for worship of Christ, and belief that the Holy Spirit is working among them presently. Um, but because of those kind of headline-grabbing things over the years, I think many of us have this kind of perpetual fear of megachurches. And by the way, I think that I would call that a healthy skepticism. I don't think it's a healthy fear necessarily, but I think that's a healthy skepticism. That's your point about critical thinking. Go into a church and ask yourself, okay, are the stated beliefs, in this case, in this day and age, on their website, actually <laughs> being practiced here? Yeah. If they say they're about you know, diversity and fellowship and worship and the Word of God, but I'm walking in here and I'm experiencing none of those things, that may have been their intention initially, and they may have grown as a result of other things, but if that's not my experience, rather than writing them off and saying, you're all sinners going to hell because you're doing church wrong, maybe we just say, I don't think God is calling me to this particular fellowship. And maybe we can feel like that's over-spiritualizing it at times, but but I think there's more of a reality than, to that um, than we give it credit for sometimes. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, no, I think I there's so much in there that is helpful for me, but also just that, that I want to point out. And the, the first one is, is you talk about uh, the mega church as like a big, what did you, word you use? Like a resource gallery almost of, and like there's so much resources available. And I think that if you think about Sunday morning as an opportunity for formation, uh, those two can go in hand in hand really well together. Um, in the sense that if we're gathering, you know, for formation and fellowship and worship, uh, we happen to do that in a place where, you know, there's, uh, resources for our people and experience and those things to help, uh, make that time, uh, more formational for me or, or, or more beneficial, I guess, for me, then, then that could be an awesome place, uh, to end up. And then, uh, I love what you, what you said as far as, uh, the abuses that often, you know, make us afraid of mega churches or kind of those headliner stories that, uh, scare us away. They happen in small churches too. And I think this is sometimes, uh, I know this is where I was, uh, was under the idea that uh, because I'd only heard about these things happening in big churches that, well, then they must only happen in big churches. Uh, and small churches might have their issues, but like they're small. So, you know, it couldn't be that bad. Uh, and I think uh, both have happened where I've uh, I've heard of sad and heartbreaking things that have happened in small churches, and I've seen great things happen in mega churches, and that's kind of leveled my, I guess, my view uh, yeah. of both, if that makes sense. But uh, yeah. when I talk to Dave on the show next week, one of the questions that he asks about small churches is, well, why are they small? And that's a depiction of whether or not they're healthy. Are they small because you know they refuse to fulfill the Great Commission? Because then that's not a picture of what, you know, the church ought to be doing as well. And so he, he talks a little bit about kind of that, that same idea uh, that you had as far as uh, we should be growing as a byproduct of, of church health. And so one of the things that he'll say next week is that, uh, you know, small churches, he shouldn't be remaining small, but that if we're healthy and we're, you know, seeking after what uh, God is, is wanting us to do, then we see growth from that. And so it's just interesting. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, to, to kind of hold those two things 
in tension with each other. But I do think there's a lot of strengths uh, when it comes to to landing in a megachurch and being a part of that body, I guess, for uh, the worship and formation on Sunday morning. Um, I think I think that there can be a lot of good and a lot of strengths there. I'd love to shift our conversation a little bit and hear from you what you think some of the potential weaknesses might be uh, in a megachurch area and knowing that these are potential weaknesses probably of all churches. Uh, there may be some like in particular depending on the size, but if I was to guess, I'd say probably a lot of these are potential weaknesses for all churches. Um, but what are some of the things that that stick out to you? And maybe I'm wrong, but... No, I, I think that's... I think that's spot on. I, th- I think there's reflections of these things in smaller churches, but I would say they're they're probably more prevalent. And again, I, I would say that for most of us, this is probably what drives some of our skepticism around larger churches in general. Um, but I the, the first one that comes to mind is just this idea of the prevalence of anonymity. Um, hmm. I think at every church I've ever been at, but particularly at larger churches, there's this sense that there are a lot of people here who are here for moralistic reasons, who are here for reasons of their misunderstanding of the gospel and maybe putting too much stock in a belief in karma and those kinds of things. So if I come to this place, if I'm a good person, if I stand upright as a citizen, if I raise my kids around other good people, then somehow, you know, somewhere on the spectrum of either good things are going to happen to me or I'm going to go to heaven. And when you're at a place where it's a little easier to exist without being known, um, that anonymity can at times run amok. And so, just as an example, at our church, you might have a person who drives up on a Sunday morning, let's say they drive up, it's a, a husband and a wife, and they don't have any kids yet, and they they roll into church, and they hear a message that they, you know, believe talks about some good morals, some ethical ways to live your life, and they leave, and over lunch, they have a conversation about it, and then by the next day, and I'm not suggesting in any way that I can speak to their definitive salvation, but there is no evidence of fruit in their life that would indicate that they are believers, and I think it's a, it's a mistake to hold the Church responsible for that, because ultimately, in my theology, the Lord and the Lord alone provide salvation. My church doesn't provide salvation, nor does yours. And if sanctification comes as a result of salvation, well, then those people can't be sanctified unless they're saved, and that's not, uh, you know, supernaturally speaking, eternally speaking, my job. Now, I'm not... We, are, we take evangelism at my church very seriously. We take engaging with individuals very seriously. I'm, I'm speaking more on like a... Uh, a cosmic sovereignty yeah. and power yeah. of God kind of way, and, and the work of the Holy, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, um, and so that that's a big one, right? That idea that, oh no, there are people here who can remain anonymous, who cannot be believers, and who can convince themselves. And and going back to our thing about you know false teachers earlier, the fear there is that not only is the church complicit, but maybe in some ways a bigger church is perpetuating people who believe themselves to be saved and are not, and certainly Paul spends a lot of time warning us against that reality, so I take that seriously, but again, that that's, goes back to the, the, the kind of follow-up to your question there. I think that's prevalent at all-sized churches. We may be talking about percentages more than numbers, but it's definitely out there. 
So that's a big one, anonymity and, and that kind of opportunity. And then I, I would just say this idea of like the machine, the bureaucracy of it all, that somehow a church is holier or better or more set apart uh, if they are lacking in... These aren't words that I would ever use to describe our ministry, but this is this is maybe what other people might think, that they're somehow... Megachurches are less holy because they're lacking in... Or, or they're they're pronounced in polish, right? They're pronounced yeah. in strong communicators, or you know, uh, rehearsed worship teams that um, are playing precise music. And well, you have giftings of your people in your church that maybe can't play the guitar that well and can't play the piano that well, and you're not letting them come up and share their gifts, which is certainly part of what fellowship is in the body of Christ. I'll agree with that, but you're not allowing them to come and share their gifts. To which I simply respond, we we have a desire at our church for every person with a musical gifting, whether they're seven years old and just starting out, or 70 years old and just starting out, or they've been playing semi-professionally for 30 years, we have a desire for them to be engaged in a place where they can share their gifts with the body of believers. We have many places where they serve. We have weekends where we bring our youth and our children up onto stage to sing and to play, and even at times to lead the congregation in song. And I will tell you that from a cultural, worldly perspective, it's not necessarily polished. It's not necessarily what we might consider to be like an earthly excellence, but it is beautiful. But if you were to come on an average Sunday, let's say, you know, 42 Sundays a year, you will see something polished, and there's that idea that, oh, that's just the machine. Nobody here is really doing anything authentically. Mm. Uh, They just crank out really, you know, well-executed, well-performed sermons, prayers, you know, pastoral, uh, congregational body life moments, that kind of thing. And I, I think... I think the megachurch gets a bad rap for that. And, and again, I, I think yeah. on some level that's yeah. fair. I, th- I think that's fair, but but I think that's one of the issues as well. Yeah, it reminds me, I, this is like a loose connection maybe, but it reminds me of when I was in a preaching class in college and our professor was talking about, you know, delivering uh, your sermon. And one of the students asked the question like, professor, like how often do you just toss your notes aside and be like, oh, I'm going spirit led on this one and just go for it? Uh like my pastor at my church does it all the time, and I think it's so amazing. And our professor said, well, I always believe my sermons are spirit-led because the spirit's there in the preparation just as much as he's there yeah. in the delivery. And right. we all kind of looked at him. I don't, we didn't really understand what he said in the moment. And he continued on, and he just said, like, if I'm going to get up there and, you know, either literally or figuratively kind of toss my notes aside and say, like, I'm just going to go for it. Uh, that might like have this appearance of, of authenticity or something that, uh, it might be attractive to, to somebody, but he says in reality, I've spent so much time like praying and preparing over my message that, uh, I believe that the spirits led me to, you know, to speak exactly the words that I've already written down <laughs> and what, uh, I've prepared to say. Uh, anyways, that, that remind, like that connected for me as well, because sometimes like, well, if we were to watch, if you were to go online and you were to watch a worship service at my church versus a worship service at your church, uh, the specifically the musical worship portion would be like just complete night and day 
difference. And and one might walk in uh, and think that because a megachurch is polished, again, this is the potential weakness that we're talking about, and might think, you know, maybe that's just like the machine or like the corporateness of it all, if you will. And maybe this other church's worship is more authentic because it doesn't feel that way. Uh, but I guess I don't, I don't feel that way at all. When I watch them both, I think like, wow, there's some, some wonderful people with some incredible gifts over there, but also there's been a lot of work and preparation, uh, that the spirit's been a part of that you as the pastor and leader of that team have been praying over and like seeking God's will for your team and for, uh, the ministry and for where the service is going to go and how you're preparing people's hearts to hear God's word. And so it's, yeah, it's not to to put those two in tension and say it must be either one, but I think uh, there's there's a connection there between recognizing that this like the spirit and uh, God they they can be at work through something that we view as polished, but there's also a lot behind the scenes that might not be that word polished. I, I know you don't like that word as much. I don't like it super much either, but just that idea that uh, the spirit can be there in in, in the preparation and in just because it appears uh, to have that like machine corporate polish feel to it doesn't mean uh, that it is that way uh, on the outside, even if that might be your experience walking in. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's probably one of the one-for-one comparisons that I would say between a bigger church and a smaller church and the way that we sometimes can tend to demonize each other. And I would say it's one of those situations where you're falling off the balance beam on either side. Yeah. And what I mean by one for one is I have had an equal experience from megachurch folks who are used to, and again, I, I really do hate this word, but if this is going to be the criticism from the other <laughs> side, who are used to a level of polish, let's say, not just on Sunday mornings, but when they're hearing from other pastors and they're getting, yeah. whether it's congregational care or uh, counseling or whatever, there's that sense of polish. And if they were to go to a smaller church or if they were talk to, their, to talk to their friend about their church or they were to watch one of those services online, the, the, the dramatic failure that I see a lot of times is they go, oh, why would you ever go to a church yeah, like that yeah, without yeah. that level of polish? And then on the other side, and this is why I say it's so fascinating to me for its, because it's one-to-one, is when I have those conversations in the opposite direction, when I describe to someone our church, and they they tend to be a part of, and, and I might even say prefer a smaller church, they go, oh, how could you ever go to a church <laughs> that, you know, is so polished? And and I wish that, again, we would stop demonizing each other, and not yeah. in like a passive, like, oh, different strokes for different folks kind of way, not that, but I wish we would actually look and say, man, how good is God that in yeah. both of those situations, and, and, and put myself in either one of those people's shoes, in an environment that I wouldn't be comfortable and that I don't feel called to in a community that I am not necessarily called to minister to. How good is God? How powerful is God? How wonderful is God that His Spirit moves in the midst of the weaknesses of all of those people, and that He moves in a way that cannot be understood fully by us? And if we moved back to looking at those kind of dichotomies a little bit more charitably, I think all of the sudden we see much more unity in certainly in the global church, but even in the church, you know, a mile and a half away from my church that we tend to demonize or feel in competition with. 
Yeah, I think I think that's spot on. And the other thing I wanted to add to that too was what we're what we're really dealing with here. Like if we're evaluating, you know, kind of these two approaches, mega versus small. Although I I don't like that I used them in verses like that. But uh, if we're evaluating that, we have to remember that in a lot of these issues or things that make us uncomfortable, we're dealing uh, with heart conditions and heart issues. And those things play themselves out in a mega setting and in a small setting. And so Mm -hmm. uh, when we're looking at worship, uh, I think I I, I called you one time, this is like in the beginning of uh, my work as a pastor and I had stepped in to lead worship at at the small church that we were at and the worship uh, pastor had, uh, pulled me aside to, he did not like the way I was singing my R's for some reason, which I don't, you know, it's an experience. I've never been told that before, but I'm self No, every time, every time I meet somebody who knows you, they say, I hate the way Noah sings his R's. So I'm sorry if I'm the, only the second person to call it out to you. No, but. it's all right. But when I talked to you about it, uh, you, you made some comment about like, well, is, uh, you know, is an R sung like that, like less worshipful or less reverent than you know, an R sung, you know, in a different way, whatever the, the musical terms are for it. And I realized, like, I guess that's true. Like, there, you know, there's not that I I want to improve musically, obviously, but but there's a reality that we're dealing with a heart issue and a reverence for worship and, and, awe, and awe for God and that sort of a deal that we're drawing into. And when we look at it from that perspective and give kind of the charity and grace that you're talking about to the other side... And we see, like, you know, how amazing is it, right, that my, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ, like, they're they're experiencing this heartfelt worship that if I'm going to assume the best about my brothers and sisters in Christ, which for some reason is a lot harder for us to do than it should be, uh, and look at that and look at a mega church and say, wow, they they seem to be, like, truly worshiping. And instead of just assuming that, well, it's just a gig and they're on stage and that, just trusting that their hearts in the right place and, and doing the same as we look at a small church and thinking, well, I might not want to go there because, you know, it lacks a level of whether whatever it is, comfort or polish or the experience for me, but recognizing, well, if the heart's in the right place and like we're, we're drawing in to worship God, then, you know, kind of all of these things that we're talking about, like that's the center of it when we draw together is, is to have a heart that's uh, open before God to, to give him the focus and the attention that he deserves. And it, it reminds me of, uh, Colossians three sixteen, uh, and Paul's talking about how we, I'm going to butcher the words, but how he says like teaching and admonishing each other, singing songs, uh, hymns and spiritual songs. And, oh man, I don't know if that's the exact right words, but he goes on to, I, I, I got, I got a computer. I can pull it up here. Uh, make sure I don't, uh, Colossians three sixteen. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And I remember being uh, in college and in a class, and a professor's talking about worship. And it was the first time I realized that one of the ways that we teach and encourage each other is when we sing and worship. And so that part of what we're doing when we worship God is we're also encouraging the people around us and we worship God also for the benefit of the people around us. And I never realized that before. And it gave me such a broader perspective on even just like worship songs that I was uncomfortable with or uh, worship styles that I was uncomfortable with because I could look around and see my brothers and sisters in Christ worshiping. And, and was able to say like, oh man, like, you know, I might not like this song or I might not like this style, 
But this isn't actually about me at all right now. Uh, this is about God. And look at my brothers and sisters in Christ. They're worshiping and, and they're either, they're encouraging me to worship with them. And when I engage in worship, I encourage those around me to engage in worship. And so it just comes back to, for me, that unity in Christ that you were talking about earlier and seeking, seeking unity above disunity, uh, kind of when we evaluate these styles. But I don't know, that, that verse really came to mind for me as you were talking, but... So the last, the last question that I had for you, uh, and we are, we said we were going to be shorter, but we're a little longer. <laughs> There's so much. This is the problem with my lack of self-awareness when it comes to how long I'm going to talk. <laughs> I, I assured Noah right before we started this episode, I said, oh, this will be a short one today. I don't, I don't think we're going to take too long. And here we are scratching at your longest episodes. <laughs> no, it's good. Uh, well, I have one last question for you and we can wrap it up. Uh, we've talked about it a little bit the difference in a, in a mega church. Cause the, maybe the question or, uh, for a lot of people is like, well, entertainment, uh, where does that, where does that find its place? I think we even, we even talked about this a little bit on our last episode, but my question is if we're looking in the setting of, of a mega church, uh, how do we kind of evaluate the difference between entertainment and formation? Like we talked about in the beginning and what does that look like? And this probably takes place at smaller churches as well too, but I think specifically, in the realm of a mega church, when I'm attending or being a part of that Sunday morning gathering, how can I evaluate between this is this is formational and this is just entertainment, or or is that ev- or or am I off there? I guess. What do you think? I don't think your question's off. I think it's a great question. I think it's something we should wrestle with, and I think foundationally, fundamentally, what it comes down to is uh, whose responsibility is one's faith. Because if you assume that a megachurch is all about entertainment, then what you're saying is a person's faith, a person's sanctification, a person's formation, and and all of that is primarily the responsibility of of the gathering that they attend. Right. Right. And, you know, I talked a few minutes ago, you said that the way that we combat consumerism is critical thought, and I think that is one great check and balance against that idea of entertainment— But I would also say, and I'm repeating myself now, but you and I have talked a lot about this over the years, I think another way to combat consumerism is contribution. Yeah, yeah. And so I've been to megachurches that I would absolutely describe as entertainment-focused. I I wouldn't describe our church that way, but I I sympathize, I empathize, I I would even agree with those who level that criticism against megachurches, and that's where I would agree with you, that it's probably more prevalent in bigger churches than it is in smaller churches. Yeah. But I would say this— even in those places, if there may be, if their fault is that they're too focused on entertainment, but if the word of the God, uh, excuse me, if the word of God still reigns, reigns supreme, if the work of the Holy Spirit is still there, and you can ask yourself the question, what can I contribute to this community? Yeah. All of the sudden, it changes the way that we participate. It changes the way that we understand, and it changes the way that we engage in church community. Yeah, and so conversely, like I, I was saying a few minutes ago, that uh, that at a mega church, you you might tend to be assuming that it's the church's responsibility to help someone exercise their faith. 
if instead what we assume is that the Holy Spirit is at work inside of all believers and that the ministry of the gospel is their responsibility, the Great Commission is their commission, then all of the sudden showing up to a Sunday gathering and, and what we're doing there becomes remarkably different. And, and I'm, I'm frustrated, though, though I can sympathize at times when people are not being spiritually fed, but I'm frustrated at times when people say, oh, I left my church because I wasn't being fed there. I, I just want to know what they mean, because I do think that's a very legitimate concern and is a, is a perfectly good reason to leave a church when you feel like maybe there's a spiritual emptiness, maybe there's some falseness to the teaching, whatever. So I, don't hear me saying that carte blanche, you can't ever say or believe that, but I think we that's one of those things that we say that we're bathing something else with holy water. What we actually yeah. mean is the things that I'm comfortable consuming are not present at that church. Yeah. And so I hear people saying all the time to me, oh, we started coming to your church because we were at a church down the street, and we loved that church, but they didn't have a good youth program for our kids. Right. And I go, okay, well, I'm glad you're here, and I'm trusting in God's sovereignty that he brought you to this place for a reason, but let me just, you know, let me dig a little deeper, assuming we get a little relationally deeper and we get to know each other and I get to hear your story. I might ask the tough question, did you ever consider that maybe the reason you felt that stirring in your heart is because the Lord was calling you to serve the youth of that church? Or were you primarily engaged with, I have kids who want something, it's my responsibility as a parent yeah. to deliver their wants to them, and so we have to go somewhere else. Yeah. And so that idea of not being spiritually fed, I think, drives a lot of people away from all kinds of churches. And again, I, I think, hear me loud and clear, there are legitimate reasons to, you know, wield that phrase, to wield that idea, but I also think a lot of times we mask our consumerism by saying, I wasn't being fed there, or it wasn't doing the things for me spiritually that I needed it to. Yeah, yeah, and in my experience, uh, and I guess tread lightly, but typically uh, those people that I've interacted with who've had that experience, they've left several churches because they felt like they weren't mm. being spiritually fed. And there there yeah. comes that there becomes a pattern where you have to ask the question, well, is there no sit there's there no church in this city that's spiritually feeding its people, then what are the rest of the Christians doing who have found a church to plug into? Uh, and right. just kind of a, a challenge to, you know, examine ourselves as well is kind of what you're saying is uh, before we just dump that on like the church's responsibility. I'm not being spiritually fed. There is a kind of a self-examination and a self-awareness too of, well, you know, am I stepping into, you know, these things or, or is it uncomfortable for me or it's not topics I am comfortable with or care about and I'm walking away right. from that and feeling not spiritually fed because I didn't engage. Well, it comes down to that responsibility piece. You know, Paul talks about that we don't, we don't want to go back to our spiritual state where we were drinking milk. And I'm going to make some assumptions here and stress, stretch his analogy, but when we were being fed milk, it was being provided to us. When we eat meat, in Paul's analogy, we're doing that for ourselves, by and large. And so, again, I, I don't ever want to discount the impact of the gathering. I said at the outset today, I take that all very seriously. You know, the liturgical movements, the liturgical uh, history and tradition of your church is so important, and I hope and pray that you have worship staff and teaching staff and formational staff, and if all those are the same person, that they're strongly considering those things and how it forms the body when it gathers. But at the same time, we we ought to ask ourselves the question, you know, what am I 
doing to deepen in my faith? What am I doing yeah. to feed myself? And if I'm feeding myself in those ways, if I'm feeding my family in those ways spiritually, and then I'm arriving at a gathering, whether with a spiritual need or with a spiritual, you know, spiritual abundance, if I'm if I'm in yeah. a season of blessing or a season of trial, whatever I'm bringing that I'm contributing, that when I sing, I'm not just singing because I like the song or I don't like the song, but because I recognize that I'm in mm. a community of believers who requires my voice in order that the congregation might have song. And so th there's just so much in that, and I think we miss it a lot, maybe partly because, our, because of our culture, but I also think it's a little more um, innate in our fallen nature than we give it credit for sometimes. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree, and I'm reminded, I'll be brief, but Ephesians 4 talks a lot about uh, you know the apostles and saints and, and teachers were given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, uh, so that we might no longer be like children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but that we'd grow up, uh, into maturity, into the, the head of Christ, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that, that speaks to me and reminds me of the reality that our goal is to continue maturing, uh, as disciples. And that, that maturity piece, uh, comes with the going and, seeking to, to feed yourself, if you will, and stepping into that and taking responsibility for that. Um, you know, there's not where there's immaturity, there's often not much responsibility. And that's what leads to, uh, I would say they're, they're kind of like a reciprocal, uh, relationship. But as we mature, we hopefully grow in responsibility for taking on more and more maturity and continuing to grow. Um, and so I see that, I think, uh, that you nailed that spot on. And I want to say thank you again for coming on the show. Uh, this is really helpful for me. I hope it's helpful um, for those who listened. But again, we just, a wonderful conversation on what it looks like to find, uh, you know, a healthy and biblical church and why potentially that a mega church could be the right fit uh, for you and where, where we might do some of that really well uh, in the mega church setting and, and potentially where we, where we fall short. But again, as we say on this episode, we'll say on next episode, we see, the, the rises and the pitfalls, we see them both in mega and small, and that's not necessarily the sides we want to pick. We want to seek unity in the body of Christ for the glory of God uh, globally, even as you talked about in that definition of the church at the beginning. So thank you, Derek. Appreciate you coming on and uh, excited to have another conversation sometime soon. Yeah, looking forward to it. Love everybody. We'll talk soon. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Get Your Donut Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And if you liked what you heard, Rate the show and leave us a review. It helps other people find us and it lets us know how you feel about it. I hope you have an awesome day and that you never settle for anything less than all in with Jesus. Jesus.